4. Chapter 1 is the basis of the entire study. And before we get to that, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll just jump right in. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Each one of us here experienced your kindness today, how you provided for us by keeping us warm and feeding us, putting clothes on our back, friendships, and of course the reminders of Christians that you are with us and that we are in your family. So we pray, Father, for more grace tonight as we go through our study and look at your son and the work that he did. I ask for wisdom for all of us and understanding for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 sets up the entire workbook because if we understand chapter 1 and believe it, everything else will fall into place. If we get chapter 1 wrong, which is how we got the Bible and the Bible writings are inspired, if we believe that, the doctrines will go through will be clear as we study them together. If there's some doubt in your mind or comprehension, that's one thing you always ask questions. But if in your mind there are some things you don't agree with or think it's wrong or you just don't think part of the Bible is there that's true, part of it's wrong, then that's a recipe for disaster. So that was chapter one. All scripture is given by God is profitable for doctrine. Chapter 2 is how to study the Bible. First is, is the Bible true? Yes. Second one is, okay, how do we study it? Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. And we spent a couple weeks on that one because we have to know the process of how to study. Here's what they are. Summary. What does it say? What do I see? What does it mean? How can I apply it? That's basically the questions we ask ourselves when we study. What do I see? What does it say? What does it mean? How can I apply it? Have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're reading the Bible and you just read it and put it down, don't think anything of it? Sure, we've all done that. Let me encourage you to just ask yourself those four questions. What do I see? Oh, I'm in chapter 39 of Genesis. What does it say? Read it. What does it mean? How can I apply it? If you ask those questions as you just go through your studies, that'll broaden your understanding of what you're going through. Chapter 3 was also very important. Chapter 3 was the characteristics and attributes of God. Basically in that chapter we went through the attributes listed in the Bible, talked about them, because there's only one person who can describe who God is. You know who that is? That's God. He's the writer of Scripture. So he describes himself and in this case, chapter 3. Spent a lot of time there. All of us move toward a mental image of the Lord some way, somehow, or another. When we think of God, all of us move to something. The Bible helps us to be clear on who He is and, and what He does. And in chapter 4, that was on the person of Christ. How the Eternal One became a man. Some of the false teaching out there is that Jesus is either not God or not truly man or that when he became a man he stopped being God 
or that he used his own attributes, chapter 3 in our book, because they apply to him too. He used his own attributes to do the miraculous. He used the power of the Holy Spirit, following the will of God, and he never stopped being God in his true man. So we talked about that hypostatic union. He became a man to do what? Reveal God to us, and what? Save us. He came, he came to save us. So let's start there. We're in chapter 5. Chapter 5 in your workbook, page 41. Let's look at it. Look at the verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible tells us this is the work of Christ with three things from that verse. Three things. Christ died for not for us to go to heaven Christ died for, not for us to have hope, not for us to have joy, not for us to have peace, even though that's true. What did he die for? Our sins. He died for our sins. The second part was that he was buried. And the third part is he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, which ties back to chapter 1. All scriptures given by God, which is true, the Bible said this is what would happen. He would die, he would be buried, and then he would be raised from the dead. Why is it important that Jesus was raised from the dead? By the way, I want this to be really informal as we go through the next few weeks. Feel comfortable. We'll just go through stuff together. And if we don't have the answers, we'll study it and figure it out. But why was it important that he was raised from the dead? Because if he wasn't, then he wasn't who he claimed to be. He wasn't who he said he was. And he couldn't accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. His death would have been insufficient and it would have been inadequate if he's not raised from the dead. So you and I believe in someone, Christians, I don't know all of you here, know some of you, but I'm going to just take into account everybody in here is a Christian, okay? We're believing in somebody we've never seen, we've never talked to, we've never heard, that's in the later chapter on spiritual gifts. Nobody hears the voice of God except the voice speaking from Scripture. So we're believing in someone we've never met, and yet we're putting our whole life on something, including his resurrection. Is that what we're doing? And if you agree, I see you nodding your heads. Then that's the work of God in your mind, in your heart, that that's true. And there's really nothing else that 
needs to be said in a sense of I need to prove to people what I believe. You do really don't. What it all comes down to at the end is what do you and I believe at the end that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. We have to believe those things to be saved. If we don't believe those things, we can't be saved. The Bible teaches us. Paul included himself in the company of believers when he wrote that verse. This is the heart of the gospel. These verses right here, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. It's the center part of the gospel. This is what we're to believe. And he said, well, this is of my fifth thing I want to say to you. No, it's his first of first importance. This is the most important. This is, this is the priority. And it's this. Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead. And note this in, in your verses. What I also received. You know, somewhere or someone along the way witnessed to you, or you read it on your own. I know people who read the Bible without having someone come up and witness to them, which happens. Nonetheless, everybody received it. I received it, you received it. That's a gift. Some, somewhere in the future in our study, we're going to talk about the providence of God and how he worked circumstances, which is very easy for him to bring you the gospel so you could also receive that of first importance. Very important verse. In your notes and in your workbook it says, the scriptures tell us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The title of our chapter, The Work of Christ, that verse tells us the work of Christ again. He bore our sins in his body on the tree or on the cross or on the wood. Some versions may say that. Have you guys heard of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus? <coughs> That's this. He's our substitute in place of. Have you ever heard the saying that the Pope is the vicar of Christ? You ever heard that? Yeah, that means he is in place of Christ on earth. Vicar or vicarious is another word. The, the substitutionary work is the vicarious work of the Lord Jesus in place of us. So what did he do in our place there on the cross? What did he do for us? Bore the wrath of God for our sins. Our sins. Yeah. The stripes on his back when he was flogged, he was ju being judged there too. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of judgment in our place for you and me. If there's ever any motivation to do the things what the Bible says to do, it's a motivation of gratitude and love for what the Lord has done for us in our place. 
Again, this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is what he died for. Now, as we move through these next you know, few lines in our workbook, I want to spend a little bit of time here on Roman numeral one. In our study, through Fundamentals of the Faith, this is one of the most important sections that we'll need because if we get the character of God wrong and man's condition wrong, we're off. Particularly next time in chapter 6 when we talk about salvation because there are people who believe that because of their good works that God saved them because of their good works. Or they can, in cooperation with God, receive grace. Or Christians who believe that they can do something to receive grace even after becoming a Christian. Or there are people who believe that when becoming a Christian, the heart is no longer desperately wicked and sick and evil. That's all wrong. The Bible here is going to teach us a very important doctrine that if we get this right, and the character of God right, it's like the Bible opens up to wonderful truths. And the more that it's opened up, you see the grace of God expanded, His compassion for His children, how the world basically is functioning now as God looks down on His church and His children. God is under no obligation for unbelievers. He's under no obligation at all. He's under obligation to his children. And as we get these more entrenched into our thinking, we see it more and more and more in God's grace more and more and more. So let's look at Romans 3, 10 through 12. Turn in your Bibles there and let's look at it because we want to look at the words none and all. Romans 3, I want to start with verse 9 and go through 12. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are this, all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. A lot of nuns and a couple of alls and everything in there to encompass everything, isn't there? What six things is every man guilty of? Number one, what is it? That nobody's righteous. Paul, superintended by the Holy Spirit, is describing men in general. He's not describing a class of people or a race of people. He's describing men in general. Another way of putting this is not only is none righteous, everyone is universally evil. It's quite a statement, isn't it? 
when you have a five-year-old little grandchild and they look up at you and they say they love you? The Bible describes everyone, including the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, children, as not righteous. Very important to remember. Number two. What's number two listed? Nobody understands. Thank you, Christy. None <laughs> understands. So everybody's universally evil, and nobody comprehends spiritual things. Another way of putting that is people are spiritually ignorant. Ignorance is not having knowledge. People are spiritually ignorant. <clears throat> so we've now got two things men are guilty of, more universally evil, don't comprehend spiritual things. Number three, what else? Nobody seeks for God. Good. Nobody seeks after God. You ever had somebody say to you, well, I think they seek God. They're seeking God right now. Two things are happening. Number one, none seek God. Well, there's what I'm defaulting to. Or God is drawing them to himself and they're asking questions. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So when we say none seek after God, we're saying re rebellious and defiant and disobedient. So let me put it to you this way. Jesus says in the scriptures, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in spirit, and you'll find rest for your souls. People don't want to come, and I didn't either, and neither did you. That's the offer based on the fact that I didn't understand and I was evil. Okay, that's three things we're guilty of. What's number four? Pardon me? All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Very good. All have gone out of the way. All have been headstrong and self-willed. I'm not going to do that. What he says, I'm going to do what I want. Everybody's wayward is another way of looking at it. Universally evil, spiritually ignorant, nobody understands anything. And now I'm, I'm basically turning aside and I'm headstrong. I'm going to do what I want to do. And everybody reaches a point. Is we grow up in, through life apart from when infants may pass on and die here. But somebody reaches a condition of accountability where they do understand. And we do think it through. 
and we don't want to come. How do we know we don't want to come? All we have to do is go back and review our lives and what we did when we were, before we were saved and look how we lived our lives. Number five, what else? That, what's the fifth thing men are guilty of? Good, useless, yeah. Yes. Worthless, useless. Another way of saying this is spiritually useless. Uh, spiritually purposeless. How does that make us feel? We are useless and we don't have a, a spiritual purpose. Unprofitable. We're all guilty of it. Last one. What's the last one? Nobody does good. That's a nice way of saying that everybody's morally corrupt and purely rotten. That's just a nice way of saying it. When is the last time you guys, including myself, have been in a Bible study and you started talking about the condition of man and somebody says, you know what, you're purely, you're purely rotten and you're evil and gave you the condition which is called the depravity of man. When's the last time you've been in a Bible study like that? Been a while? Recently? Usually that's few and far between. You know why? Either the teacher hasn't come across it in his studies, B, doesn't want to talk about it, or C, doesn't believe it. You just don't hear about it. So what do we talk about usually in Christian circles? You know what the number one attribute of God that's listed when people say, what do you think of when you think of God? You know what it is? Love. Love and then grace. And then mercy. And then compassion. And then over here is the doctrine of homartiology, which we just went through. The doctrine of sin or depravity. That's what it is. What we just looked at is called the sin principle of depravity. It's within every person who's ever lived, is living, will live. And everybody's guilty of it. We just read it. Six things. So basically depravity refers to the corruption of sin extending to all attributes of that person. Mind, love and emotions. My mind is depraved. My love for other people's depraved. And so are my emotions. We don't do anything that's pure. You ever said, well, I'm 100% pure on that? That is an incorrect statement. He may, person may be purer than he was before that. But nobody's 100% pure. Till when? Heaven. The Bible calls it glorification. Which points back to there is nothing that we do in our lives that we can boast back to God and say to him, look what I've done for you because of my goodness. Because when we do, that takes a blow at grace, God's glory.
Okay. You look so serious. <laughs> I know that's not a happy subject. But any questions? Any thoughts? Terry, when you, uh, in your evangelism or when you're just talking to people or whatever the circumstances are, if somebody tells you that they are seeking God, how do you kind of turn that conversation to, I mean, or do you have the, have you had the opportunity to turn that to know God, it's really God who is probably chasing you? I have, Brad. Uh, I actually had someone say to me once at work, I couldn't believe it. Quote, what must I do to be saved? I couldn't believe it. I go, are you reading Acts 16? <laughs> um, well, Brad, I think when, when I've heard that in the past and I think if it comes up again, I will ask a question with, well, tell me what, what, you, what you mean when you say you're, you're seeking God. Because I want to know what they're thinking. And I don't want to make the assumption that I know what they're thinking because I don't. Which could lead to a myriad of things. It could lead to what they believe, most often it does. Which could lead to, well, tell me, when, when did you become a Christian? I don't think they are. But all that to say is, Brad, I ask questions. And if they, you know, lead to um, comments to where they'll say something that isn't true or right, I will say something like, and I, I believe this when I say it. I understand what you mean because I used to think that way. But here's what the Bible says. And then I'll say it. Which is another reason to put Bible verses to memory. So we can recall it, Christian friend, because you and I are representatives of the Lord to other people in any given moment. And so that's how I would handle it. And I kind of dismiss, Brad, that when they say they're seeking God, I, I don't say anything, oh, really? You're seeking God? I go, well, tell me about that. What, I will say, what do you mean? But there are other ways to do it. That's just what comes to mind. If I can encourage you this way, try to ask them what they think before jamming theology down their throat and they choke on it. Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. He can't understand them. Doesn't mean we're, we shouldn't say it. But I think it's good to get in a conversation and be friendly and engaging and kind. Because the Bible says that. Proverbs 3.3. 3, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. I want to be kind, but I want to be clear with the truth. Does that help? And if I could add to that, Brad, because I want to remember how God treats me. He treated me that way. Why would I not want to treat somebody else that way? Which, by the way, he providentially brought that situation to me to begin with. There are no chances, nothing by happenstance. The lots are cast into the lap and every decision is from the Lord. That's Proverbs 16.33. Every decision is from the Lord. Everything we experience, God's given permission to for that to take place, even when it's difficult. Okay, 
in your workbook, it says, Romans 3.23 sums up the problem. And here's a good verse to also memorize when talking with someone and even to put into our own thinking for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have fallen short. That's not some. That's not most. That's not just a few. That's not almost all. It's all. Everybody's fallen short. Some other cross-reference verses that are good there is Ecclesiastes 7.20. There's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. It's Ecclesiastes 7.20. The wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus wrote that. Solomon. <coughs> Ezekiel 18.4. The soul that sins shall surely die. Psalm 143.2. In your sight. No one living is righteous. Psalm 143.2. Genesis 6.5, the intentions of their hearts and thoughts were evil continually. What did God do with them? Those people whose hearts and thoughts were evil continually, what did he do to them? He killed them. God wiped them out with the flood. Except for eight. In 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. Let's look at B in your book. To what is man a slave? John 8.34. Anybody got it? Sin. Now, I think it would be incorrect not to stop there and talk about sin. We've already seen that everybody's guilty of six things. But what is sin? What, what is it? Sin is basically this. It's missing the mark of God's standard. It's not that we shoot and we miss the target. We're facing the other way in shooting. And the only way we hit the mark is through repentance. Remember, repentance is a change. And conversion, conversion is a change. Okay, so sin is wrongdoing, and it's a defection from any of God's standards. So we as Christians, when we sin, and we did today, miss the mark of God's standard, and Jesus back at the cross paid for that, so we don't have to pay for that anymore. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned for those who believe in Him. He paid for that back there. But we still miss the mark when we sin. And it's not because we don't have the power to do it. We do have the power to do it via the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know that any of these things we just talked about in Romans 3, 9 through 12, we still have the residue of these things in us. We still do. Don't let anybody trap you into saying that they've moved into a position of perfection in this life. Positionally, yes. Practice, no. Because all we have to do is watch each other live our lives. People get angry. 
steal people or immoral. People watch things they shouldn't watch, read things they shouldn't read, listen to things they shouldn't listen to, aren't kind to their spouse and family, neighbors, co-worker, all you do is watch. That's the practice that's still in us. And 3.23 sums it up, and John 8.34 says, we're, man is a slave. In this case, we're now talking to those who are unregenerate. Who are we slaves of now? <coughs> the Lord Jesus. Prior to salvation and conversion, slaves to sin. Did Christ teach about sin much? Did he talk about it much? Talked about it a lot. And he talked about it specifically. This is not in your notes, but I want to give them to you. You can listen if you want. You can jot down if you want, but I want to give them to you. Because these are the things we're also guilty of, in a sense. Specific things that Christ taught about sin is sacrilege. That's irreverence toward him. Irrever irreverence towards holy things. What would that be? How I view the Bible? How I pray? Do I take communion? Have I been baptized? Am I to love the brethren? Am I to worship him? Am I to give thanks in all things? What about hypocrisy? Am I pretending to be something that I'm not? Do I want to look good to somebody that I'm not? How about covetousness? That's a sin of greed. We know we're in that position when we think about what we want. It could be anything from another person to something that's just a concrete object. House, car, golf, money. If my mind is on that, that's a, that's a sin of covetousness. What about blasphemy? Profanity. Cursing. That's Matthew 12, by the way. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 12. The transgressing of the law. A direct violation of disobeying God's law. Let me give one to you. Abstain from sexual sin. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that encompass? What does sexual immorality encompass? Just in the body? No. Up here. That's transgressing the law when I pursue those other things in that example and sin. Pride, let's just call pride for what it is. It's exaggerated self-esteem. That's all it is. I think of myself more highly than I ought to think. That's Romans 12.3. Uh, Romans 12.16, do not be wise in your own estimation. So things like that can come into mind. I bet they're really glad that I get to come and be a part of the group. 
I bet they're really glad I'm their friend. I bet they're really glad I'm at work to do the job. I don't know what they're going to do when I leave. I bet they're really going to miss me. That's pride. That's exaggerated self-esteem. Being a stumbling block is a sin. We're going to get into liberty later on in our study in our workbook on liberty. Can I have a tattoo? Can I drink? Can I smoke? Can I go to the movies? What can I do? What can't I do? What This is what shouldn't I do. This is all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. Paul said that. So when we become a stumbling block to somebody, that's sin. You do not have to answer this question, except in your mind. Now those of you who know me, and those of you who I haven't met yet, and would like to get to know you, you probably have an impression of, of me, as I do you. If you were to come over to our house, and I pulled out a six-pack of Guinness, and started to smoke a cigar, would that bother you? Remember, you're answering it in your mind. <laughs> Some of you are saying, it won't bother me. Some of you are saying, that would bother me. Okay. I could do that. But would I be a stumbling block to somebody else? Most likely. So if I do that, and I'm causing somebody to stumble, that's a sin. I do need to add some balance here. We are free in Christ to do and to follow Him. It is for freedom Christ has set you free, Galatians 5.1. We're free on the preferences of life. The question is, what preferences am I going to take to not be a stumbling block or not take in this case? Of course, disloyalty. Um, putting comforts and proper duties before the Lord. That's disloyalty. The Bible calls God faithful. He's never disloyal to us. He's faithful. Of course, we talked about immorality. Sin committed in the heart is a sin. Fruitlessness is a sin. You say, well, how can that be? How can fruitlessness be a sin? Coming up in our chapter, Spiritual Gifts, by not exercising your spiritual gift. Whatever that is. Some people have the gift behind the scenes to serve and help. Never know what's going on. Some people pray. Never know. Some people have more visible gifts. They're all the same because Christ had all of those gifts. And using the gifts brings fruit. Anger is sin. You know, what is it that um, can cause us to be angry? It's generally from two things for us to be angry. Pride and selfishness. 
I, I want my way, and you're not going to tell me what to do. Pride is a, is a deadly, deadly sin. Uh, sins of speech, we have a few, just about five more. Sins of speech, Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.33. That would be not keeping a promise, not keeping a vow. The Bible says it is better to not vow than to vow and to not keep it. Showing off is a sin. Matthew 6, 1 to 18. And in this case, parading off one's supposed holiness. I want to show them what I have memorized. I want to show them and tell them what I've been reading. That's, that's showing off sometimes if the motive is wrong. Lack of faith. Okay, does anybody in the room ever have anxiety over situations in life? Everybody has it. And we'll have it again. That's a lack of faith and that's a sin. Matthew 6.25 What's it a lack of faith of? God unable to provide for the situation. That's a lack of faith. We're saying, I don't think you can do it. So we get anxious, and so what do we do? We start controlling the situation. We feel better when we can control it. The Bible calls it a lack of faith in sin. Irresponsible stewardship, those are the parables in Matthew 25 and Luke 19. Irresponsible stewardship. Look at what the Lord has given you in your own mind. Go through a list really quick in your mind of what you have and what has God given you. So that could be anything from uh, material things to spiritual things. How could we be a poor manager, that's a steward, manager of spiritual things? whatever a gift would be, and not using it. I'm a poor manager. Did you know that each one of us, as Christians, will give an account to the Lord as a steward, as a manager? We, he will not condemn us. Jesus has already paid for that. But in the parable, parables found in Matthew 25, Luke 19, that's what he's talking about. Last one, prayerlessness is a sin. Luke 18, 1, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that list could be lengthened, but it certainly demonstrates how many particular sins the Lord spoke of. And just think about the sins of unbelievers. What's the number one sin that they have that covers all of their sins more than the ones specifically just mentioned. What is it? Unbelief. In Christ. In this. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. 
And now on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. They don't believe it. That's the sin of judgment that's coming. In your notes, what's the end result of sin? Death. What kind of death are we talking about here? There's physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Which one are we talking about? Yeah, eternal What's eternal death? What's the place of eternal death? Hell. Hell is the place of eternal death. Right now we've already experienced physical death through one man sent into the world and brought forth death. We see it in our bodies. Get a picture from 15 years ago. Look at yourself. Look to now. And the aches and pains of the curse that we live under, we're feeling it. Physical death. What else is there? Spiritual death? What is that? Very important to remember before we get to chapter 6. Spiritual death is separation from God in the soul. The soul is dead and is not alive. That's why everybody's guilty of the six things we just read. Universally evil. Nobody understands. Nobody comprehends anything. None seek God. Nobody does anything good. Nobody does anything that uh, is profitable. That's spiritual death. I'm spending some time here with you because we're going to start getting into some doctrines in the future. I know I keep putting off previews of coming things, but this is so important because when we get into the chapter of the electing work of God, his specific foreknowledge and predestination and election of God for some to be saved. Now you're going to know why. Instead of, well, I don't want to believe in God like that. That's not fair. That's why the doctrine of depravity is so vital to understand. Any questions? Any thoughts? Kind of make sense? Okay. <coughs> Remember what Jesus said to ring in your minds and mine. When we come across either doctrines we haven't heard much or don't agree with, he said this, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus, Jesus claimed the Bible's true. He claimed it was. So when we read it, it's always not an issue when we don't understand it. It's not an issue of revelation. It's always an issue of comprehension for the Christian. God has revealed it. Now it's a matter of us comprehending it. And the more we learn these doctrines via the Holy Spirit, the more that we'll understand those. Look at... Um, Letter D, because we were dead in trespasses and sins, whom did we follow and what kind of children were we? From Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, this is too important to not read. Turn to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And who, whoever gets there first, uh, if you could read that out loud, that'd be great. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. 
trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thank you, Michael. Whom did we follow? What kind of children were we according to those verses? Who did we follow? Prince of Power of the Air, Satan, the Devil. Okay, so stop. Think of somebody in your mind right now who is not saved that you know and love. Okay? Who are they following? They're following the Devil. That's what it says. What kind of children were we? According to these verses. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. We were children of God's wrath. One day, God's patience will be exhausted and he will be done calling people to himself to be saved and when that time comes everybody who is not in Christ are children of wrath they will receive his wrath anger judgment in hell for all eternity and it's always right because he's always right. And it's always just in how he practices it. Wrath. Anger. Pouring it out. And that's who we were before we were saved. That's who we were. Those are the types of things that we want to try to remember when we can. So that when we get mixed up in our thinking about the Bible or church or service or activity or what am I to do, what am I not to do? Think of that. Think of, I remember what it was like to not be saved. I remember. And I was a child of wrath. That's who I was. Whose wrath will the sons of disobedience experience? Of course, we just mentioned it's God's, God's wrath. Go to page 42. In your box it says, Will God tolerate sin? He quotes Galatians 3.10, Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Again, cursed is everyone who does not abide by how many things? All things written in the book of the law to perform them. <coughs> Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one is what? Guilty of them all. So what's, is God going to be tolerant of sin? No. Of course, I know you know that. But we have to remember what the Bible teaches us because we can, we can sometimes shift away from these doctrines and forget what the Bible's teaching us. As we studied in Lesson 3, God will assert His holiness and demands conformity to that holiness. And man is faced with, and here we have them listed, 
Sin, having God as an enemy, subjection to the power of Satan, being helpless to save himself, facing death, condemnation, and eternal separation from God. So back to Brad's question. If somebody says that they're seeking after God or in a conversation where it come up about witnessing to them, What comes to your mind when you're in those situations? What do you, th- what do you think of? Do you, do you think of, I, I need to tell them what the Bible says, <coughs> of course, but, but what specifically? If you have something like that in your mind, whatever that is, I hope it's this. List these six things in your mind that everyone is guilty of. Because the Puritans used to preach this, I have to preach commendation before I can preach commendation. If they don't know what they're going to be saved from, it, it doesn't have the impact of what the Lord did. They don't know the state they're in. And here in our study, everybody's sin, everybody's God's enemy. They're under the power of Satan. They can't help themselves. They're going to die and be eternally separated. If, if you ask the Lord to help you with that when you're in a situation by asking questions, really good. Really helpful. You ever been in a situation where you feel like, I've got to get this out really quick because I may forget it and I want to tell them really fast? Or I, they need to know this really fast, so I'm going to tell them. Or they're wrong and I'm going to make them right. I know I have. Let me encourage you, slow down and listen. Slow down and ask questions. Because as you and I go out there, we we never know what's going to happen when we talk with someone. It's always harder with people and families, isn't it? Yeah. I experienced that. It's hard in families. You know, they, they kind of know the, oh, the, the secret things of our family life, you know. But let me encourage you, the same principle applies if it's family or not. Listen, ask questions, and say, I understand. Let me, can I tell you what the Bible says about that? I've even had people say no when I've asked that question. No, I don't want you to tell me. Can I tell you anyway? Because I care about you too much. Because I'm thinking in my mind that the Lord providentially brought him here or her. Knowing one waters, one sows, God gives the increase. I never know what has taken place to get to this point. Maybe I can be the person who adds or I'm sowing to represent the Lord. And if they say no again, okay. I I won't tell you. Would you ever be interested in talking about it sometime? Don't leave it open-ended. Just for your own sake. Because it will be harder next time if it comes up 
And you're thinking, well, you don't want me talking about it then. Might not now. I've had people say, no, I don't ever want to talk to you about it again. Okay. Are you sure? Because I won't force anything down your throat. And then I let it go. And then we pray for them. By the way, that's coming up in one of our chapters is evangelism and the believer. It's really just listening and being able to communicate what the Lord has taught you. That's all it is. Okay. I'm seeing almost 10 till. We can do it. <laughs> the cost of Christ's work. Go to Philippians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of the Lord, but emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What are three things Christ did when he came to earth, according to verse 7? What, did, what three things took place? What did he do? Good. Yes. Good. He emptied himself of this. Sometimes you'll hear of his privileges. It's better said he did not exercise the attributes that were his. He did not empty himself of his nature. He didn't exercise the attributes that were his. And what did he become? A servant? Remember, this is the king of kings and the creator. And he came in the likeness of man. So it cost his privileges as God. It cost him his privileges. In what way did Jesus humble himself? Verse 8. Obedience to the cross. Did Jesus know when he was born and he was growing up as he grew up? The Bible says, really interesting. In wisdom and favor and stature with God and men as he was growing up and comprehending these things, because remember, he couldn't as a baby laid aside his exercise of his uses. So at some point in time, he became aware of what? Going to die. How? On the cross. Whenever that was. Don't know when that was. He was obedient to it. How would we feel? What would we think if we had the ability let alone the will, to not go die like that. So it cost his death on the cross. He humbled himself. Just a side note on humility. Humility truly is an attribute of God. Humility is one who doesn't take owner of what 
is theirs and digs their heels in for what they want. They, they in a sense, let it go. Humility. And that's what the Lord wants from us is humility. The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a contrite heart, the Bible says in Psalm 51. And what happened to Jesus on earth according to Isaiah 53.3? That classic passage. Let's go there. Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. What happened to Jesus on earth when he became a man and he emptied himself of his privileges and became a servant? What happened to him here? Rejected. They didn't want to look at him, naturally look upon him. There are words that are also used of they were repulsed by him. So because of that, the nation of Israel did not esteem him, did not lift him up. They didn't think he was important. They thought he was a bastard child and he was a carpenter's son. And he lived in that no-name town, Nazareth. Who is he? And lest we forget, we were just like them. The other people who rejected him. Just like them. For forgiveness of sins, look at C, requires what? Shedding of blood. So what did it cost the Lord? Shedding of his blood there. In Roman numeral 2C. What price did Christ pay to redeem us? Again, the same thing. His precious blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. It says. And remember how people would, would take blood from a dead body? Or maybe, no, take blood from a body that was struggling with illness and disease instead of infusing them with blood. They thought that was the way to go to get the disease out of the body. They would take the blood out of the body. It's just the opposite in this analogy. The life of the flesh is in the blood and Jesus' blood was shed to give us life. And that's a purchase price that we could never pay from 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Classic, classic verse. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And remember, who were we slaves of before, before we were saved? Sin. So we were in the marketplace of sin, one way out, 
Somebody has to pay my way out and your way up. And it was Jesus' blood that paid the price. Thomas Brooks said, Christ's blood is heaven's key. Quote, unquote. Let's throw again. F, page 43. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? Because we're still looking at what it cost him. Cost him separation from the Father and the Spirit. He'd never experienced that before. The Father judiciously turned away from the Son, from his Son. He turned away from him. He separated himself from him in the sense of turning from him. Jesus had never experienced that, and neither had the Father and the Spirit. And what did God do to Jesus on the cross? He laid, of course, the iniquity of sin on him. Your sin, my sin. And all the sins, catch this, of who would believe. Okay? Of all the sins of who would believe. Jesus, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10. Because everything Jesus does is effective. He did not die for the sins of the whole world. Because who pays for the sins of the unbeliever? The unbeliever. So it cost him to be judged when the sins of us were laid on him. It cost him to be the sin bearer. For us. That's the work of Christ. That's where we've gone through so far. There's so much more to come in this chapter, and we'll talk about it next week. Uh, before we, we close, any, any questions? Well, I hope it helps. And in the weeks ahead, Feel free to ask questions. Feel free. We'll just talk it through because we want to know and learn together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for paying for our sins that we could never do and we didn't even want to do. But you drew us to yourself and you, Lord, for our sins. So we praise you and give you thanks. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember that as we go through the rest of the day today and into tomorrow, just bring to mind some of the things we talked about here from your word that is of first importance that you died and were buried and rose again according to the scriptures. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.